got to looking earlier, and I figured it was a shorter distance from there to here than over there, so I just <laughs> stayed down there. Well, get your seat belts and fasten them, because we're going to go like mad. I've only been studying three months on this introduction. As pastor's already said, we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews, and one of my favorite books. It's, it's a difficult book if you don't get a hold of what the whole concept is, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight and go through some of these things to really get, get you grounded in what it's all about. So this is all introduction and trying to maybe even whet your appetite for being faithful to the, to the studies in Hebrews. I'll be taking several chapters and then um, pa Pastor Joel will be taking several chapters and then Pastor will be taking several. So it's going to be quite interesting because, like he said, all of us have different styles. <laughs> Some of us have no style at all, but uh, we just shoot shotgun. Amen. But uh, there's a different approach that each one of us will have. But I think if you get a hold of some of these things tonight, it will really set the stage and, and whet your appetite to study this book along with us. Don't just come and listen to the preaching, but study it at home. Read it at home for yourself because it is jam-packed. I'm telling you, when you just begin to see this, it, it, it just starts opening up your vision to the Word of God. And we're just covering just the scratching the surface. So as we get into this, uh, we've already prayed. Let's go ahead and get into Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. All this is rich. If you, once we get into this, if you see who he is, it just magnifies the Lord. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and ministers of flame of fire, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Just dwell on that just a little bit. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. 
Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But unto which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Father, have your way in this message tonight. Lord, thrill our hearts with your word. Draw us close to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot that we could get into and I could get sidetracked about that fast, you know, and, and just take off on one of these verses, but I want to concentrate on this introduction. The purpose of Hebrews, if you understand this, was just to exalt the Savior and to exhort the saints. This is not an epistle. This is an exhortation, not to the church. This is where most Christians get messed up. This is not written to the church. This is not written to you. To me. This is written to those Jews that were dispersed because of persecution. Some were saved, some were sitting on the fence, and some were lost as a goose. And if you don't get a hold of that, who he's writing it to, you'll try to do like many of the commentators and apply every bit of it to the church, and it don't apply to you. And so if you begin to understand this, Hebrews will begin to unfold and you'll see verses like you've never seen them before. The writer here shows the superiority of Jesus Christ and his salvation over the old Jewish religious system. And he separates that. He's, he's, he's showing them what is now, but he's showing them what was past was really not much at all. When it was written, a lot of people like to get into those things. I think it was it indicates that it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by Titus, the Roman general. Uh, because of what it says in Hebrews 10, 11. We'll not turn there for the sake of time, but if you want to look that up later, uh, you can. But because of that, I think it was written before the temple because the worship service or system was, was still in place at that time. And he refers to the worship system that's going on. So the temple couldn't have been destroyed in my mind. Okay. As far as who wrote it, there is no person that has claimed authorship of this book. I believe that I can prove to you that Paul was the writer. Uh, there's a lot of differences. Some say Apollos, some say 
uh, Peter, some say all different kinds of stuff, but I, I believe that Paul was, and this is why, uh, because the early church fathers believed that. That's what they say in many of their writings. That they, they believed that it was authored by Paul uh, because the expressions like the just shall live by faith, it's only used uh, just a couple of times. Paul uses it twice and, and uh, uh, Habakkuk uses it once back in, in the book of Habakkuk uh, in the Old Testament. One of the main reasons I believe Paul wrote it is because of the statement. Go ahead and turn there to Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, turn back a little bit. Second Peter chapter 3. As you read through, a lot of times we read over these verses, but it tells us a lot. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, look in verse number 15. It says, an account... Or, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, who according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And if you go back to chapter, Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, it says he wrote this to those dispersed Jews. And so he's writing to the same people, and he indicates that here in this verse. In verse number 16, it says, And also in all his epistles, speaking to them of those things in which are some are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now, Peter states here that Paul had written the same thing to the, or to the same people. And so that's why I believe this is, this is Paul, the author. But also it refers to these other letters as being Scripture. They're, they're claimed to be the Word of God, not by Paul, but by the Apostle Peter. And the only book written to those dispersed Jews by someone that has other scriptures, other epistles written. The only other person that I understand would be Paul. No other person of my understanding fits uh, in those categories. So I believe it was Paul there. Uh, and also in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24, uh, it indicates that it was written from Italy and de it definitely states there in, in chapter uh, 10, verse 34, that Paul was in prison. And he states in that passage that, P or that, that uh, Timothy had just been released from prison. Uh, who would know that back in, in Jerusalem and those other countries outside of Paul, who was there in prison at that same time? So that's why I believe it was Paul. Now, we're going to go fast here, and you're not going to remember this. If you've got a pencil, get ready to write Scripture down and, and just, or maybe just go back and listen to the tape. Amen? Some of the characteristics in the book of Hebrews are just, they're just magnificent. They just draw you into this book. Uh, there, he uses four basic words here, over and over and over again, which gives you the mind of God. When God says something in one verse, that's good. You want to pay attention. 
But when he says something over and over and over and over, you see the thoughts of God being pinned down through men and we're getting the mind of God on the whole subject. That's why I don't just study one passage and base your doctrine on that. You base your passage on the entire Bible, what it says about that subject. And being honest, then you have to maybe change some of your thinking. Thirteen times he uses the word better. And about five other times he explains it as better, but does not use that term. For example, he said there are better things that accompany salvation. Now remember, he's, he's distinguishing between the old Testament, religious, Jewish religious system, and the New Testament, Christianity. And he says that, that these are better things that accompany salvation. He said there's a better hope. He said there's a better testament. There are better promises. He said there's a better covenant. He said there's a better sacrifice. He said there's a better and enduring substance. There's a better country, a better resurrection, a better thing for us, a better thing than that of Abel, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than man, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than the Levitical priesthood. Are you getting the idea he's trying to tell somebody something? You're going to find out why here in a little bit as we discuss why. And you're going to, many of you are going to be able to relate this to now. Because people are going through the same thing that the persecuted Jews were going through. Not only does he use the word better, but he uses the word perfect. The word perfect. The word perfect used 14 different times. It means a perfect standing before God. To stand before God perfect. This perfection, he says, could never be accomplished by the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews 7.11 says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there uh, that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? He said, that Levitical priesthood was not perfect. And it can't make you perfect. Why? He said, there's something better. You see him driving that wedge between the two and bringing the distinction. He said Jesus was perfect. In chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, being made perfect. You can't get any clearer than that as far as who Jesus was. Amen. He says again, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 17, that perfection could never be accomplished by the law. 
He said, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. They couldn't be made perfect under the law. It wouldn't make anybody perfect. That's why you see people and they say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. No, they don't. But even if they could, it wouldn't do any good. Because the law could make nobody perfect. That's what the scripture said. The blood of the animal sacrifices under their old Jewish religious system could not achieve perfection. He says that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. That's why they had to go back and offer the sacrifice again. That's why they had to go back and offer it the next day, and the next week, and the next year, and the next year. Could never make you perfect. People say people were saved differently in the Old Testament. No, they weren't. The Old Testament system could not make anyone perfect. Their faith in the Messiah that was promised, faith in the promise of God, that's what saved them in the Old Testament. Not those sacrifices, not the ceremonies, not the rules. Jesus Christ gave himself as one perfect offering for sin. And by this, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Listen to Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now listen to me. You hear of all this Calvinism stuff, okay? He died for a certain group and not for the rest. And all. What did he just say here? He made one sacrifice for all, forever. And those that have received him as their Savior are perfected. How long? Forever. Now you tell me you can lose your salvation. You just called God a liar. God's word is so plain. You have to be malignant dumb to believe something like that. You have to absolutely want to go against the word of God. Don't get caught up in all these little things that go on in the media and all the social stuff. and Just get in the book and just believe what God said. By one offering hath he, he hath perfected. That means perfect standing before God. Them that are sanctified. If you're saved, 
in God's sight, as ugly as we are, and as wicked and sinful as we are. God says in Jesus Christ, he said, you are perfect in my sight. He's contrasting that Old Testament system of law and the New Testament system of grace. He makes it clear that the Jewish religious system was only temporary. And what now is better, that new covenant, that new sacrifice, that it's better. And he's telling them this for a reason. He also uses the word eternal. The word eternal is used five times. It means perpetual, never ending. Christ, he said, is the author of eternal salvation. How long does your salvation last? Eternal. That's what he said. Hebrews 5, 9. Eternal judgment. On the other side of the coin, without Jesus Christ, the judgment of God is forever. It's eternal. Through his death, the Bible says, he made eternal redemption for us, Hebrews 9, 12. The Spirit of God that lives in my heart and your heart, he says, is an eternal spirit. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he shares with believers his eternal inheritance. We're going to probably spend a whole service just on that, that term, inheritance, because most people have no clue really of what he's talking about there and why that's so important. But in the very first chapter, oh, he lays a foundation. And I'm telling you, it will just it'll blow your mind. It really will. Then he uses the word forever. Forever. The word forever is used eight times. It also means perpetuity or perpetuity or eternal. Many times he's using the same, a different term, but it's exactly the same meaning, eternal. His throne, he said, is eternal. It's forever. His priesthood, he says, is forever. And I've got verses on all these. If you want them, you can see me later and I'll get them all to you. Uh, we're going to have them, you know, kind of on the screen to forget that. Now we're back in Africa. Amen. No screen. The priesthood is forever. The priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, he says, is forever. It's eternal. He does not stop being our high priest. He does not give his office to anyone. It was given from man to man, from Aaron to the son to the son to the son, all the way down the line. But when Jesus became the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood is eternal and never changes. Intercession is forever, the Bible says in Hebrews 
His sacrifice was made once forever. That's why the Catholics bless their hearts. It breaks my heart to see them going to Mass. Sacrificing Jesus Christ again because their sins, that he didn't do enough the first time. He has to have to sacrifice him again and again and again. They don't understand. He said there's a better sacrifice. That once for all, forever. His saints, that's us. <laughs> I like this part, are sanctified forever. We're perfected forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. When Jesus Christ changes, then you can think about losing your salvation. But he said, your salvation is just as secure as who he is. And he never stops being God. He is forever. And his glory, he said in Hebrews 13, 21, is forever. As you begin to get into this and you see these terms over and over and over, he begins to build a, a mentality, a thinking that God wants to get across to these people. There is something better. There's something that is not temporary. It is eternal. It's forever. But he also warns when men begin to doubt and they begin to question. What, is, what do you do when men start doubting? And what do you do when folks in your family or something start doubting? Same thing God did. He said, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets. Did they listen? hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. You just keep speaking. You just keep preaching. That's what he did. He keeps telling us. He warns us several times in the book of Hebrews here that we drift. Be careful that we do not drift from the word of God through neglect, Hebrews chapter 2. In chapter 3, he says, warns us about doubting the word of God and being hard-hearted. In chapter 5, he warns us about the dullness towards the word of God. They're hard of hearing and slow to obey. When you find out God says something, don't, you don't have to go pray about it. You do it. People say, well, I got saved and... I, and, and they're talk, talking to me about baptism. You don't have to pray about baptism. Why? God said be baptized. You don't pray about that. You just obey God. There's so many things that we, we, we take upon ourselves. No, no. We just need not to be dull of hearing. We need to just obey what God says. Despising the word of God, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, by willfully sinning against him. And by the way, you know what he's talking about there? Forsaken 
the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Laying out a church. People say, oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. As you get to Hebrews chapter 10, he opens the doors. And I mean, scared the fire out of me when I first saw that. Defying the word of God in Hebrews chapter 12. Refusing to hear. Over and over, he just keeps telling us more and telling us more. And he says, listen, listen, be careful how you hear. Jesus kept saying, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Well, everybody had ears to hear, but they just weren't listening. And over and over, we hear the same messages many times from pastors. Why? Because we're not listening. We're not obeying. And he says a lot about that. If we fail to listen or to obey, he says in, in the next chapter there that, that he chastens us. Not just a few. Every child, every child of God will be chastened. Why? Because we're not perfect. We're just like our own children. <laughs> uh, we mess up. And he'll have to chasten us. Sometimes verbally, sometimes it may just be reading the book, maybe a comment somebody says, maybe a little embarrassment, it may be a message or whatever. But if we don't listen, God says, I will take you to the woodshed. And if you still don't listen, you keep going on. He said, I'll kill you and take you home. Now that's not popular message in the world today. but it's Bible. Why? Because God as a father is not raising a bunch of little brats. When you tell your children to do something, you expect them to do it the first time. Not when your voice gets up to a certain tone or when you finally have told them about 17 times. I mean, when, when you tell them to do something, they need to do it. You say, well, why aren't they? Because you're not taking care of the problem. You just let it go and let it go and let it go. And finally, and you say, oh, they're tired. Well, they've been tired since they were first born. Go in and tell your boss you're tired. Uh, tired don't work in life, and it shouldn't work in your home. He said, every child of mine is chastised. Everyone. He always chastens us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. And he wants that fellowship. He wants us to be right with him. Now, oh, I'm going to have to run. Hebrews is the first apologetic for Christianity. The first book ever written on apologetics. That means basically a reasoned argument. He gives the, the, the argument for the supremacy of Christ. He gives the argument for the character of the Son of God, his person, his office, his glory. He shows that he is heir, the heir. He is the maker of the ages, the creator of all things. That's two different things there. Two different things. 
One of them has to do with things. The other has to do with time. It's the same nature and glory with his father. He's omnipotent. He's the high priest. He's the purger and the sanctifier of and for sin. And he's now setting. Whenever you see that word set in the Bible, it's special because no, there was no furniture in the, in the temple. Oh, they had a table for showbread. They had a candlestick for light. They had an altar for burning incense. There was no chair. Why? They were so busy offering the sacrifices. They had no time to sit down. But it says when Jesus offered his sacrifice of himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? It's finished. No more sacrifices need to be made. No more offering. He said, I've done it all. What a blessing. Now I want you to see the background, and this is where we'll, we'll get in and we'll hopefully get finished up here in just a minute here. The Jewish believers were having an extremely difficult time. There was tension between the Jews and those that were in the Christian faith. There was tension between them and the world, between their years and years of indoctrination in the Jewish faith, and now the fulfillment of that faith. They didn't just abandon Judaism, that fulfilled Judaism. They not only face the day-to-day -day worldliness that all of us face, that selfishness of the world, but they faced enslavement to religion, steeped in ritualism and formalism. The writer, he didn't want them to just examine themselves, although he asked them to do that. But he wants them to examine whether they are, are going to answer the question, what am I really trusting? What am I really trusting? Now listen carefully. Am I trusting in the Word of God or am I trusting in religion, traditions, rules, ceremonies? And the things of the world. You see, they didn't need the old temple anymore. See, people want you to go back and they want to bind you again. Adventism binds you again under the law. Many of the other religions, they bind you in their traditions, not biblical tradition. In their traditions, that's what the Jewish people did. They were so focused on the rules and the ceremonies and the traditions that they couldn't even see God in all of it. They didn't need the temple. They didn't need the Aaronic and the Levitical priesthood anymore. They didn't need the daily sacrifices. They had something better. He wanted them to know that the kingdom of God cannot be moved. 
Well, I'm telling you, when, when you get saved, there is a freedom. There is a joy. There is a heart change, a mind change, a, a different set of want-tos. I didn't want to go to the bar anymore. I want to go to church. Oh, listen. They were secure in Christianity. But in the old religion, they never knew if they were really saved, if they really could go to heaven, or if they needed to do something else, follow. Did I break one of these rules? The emphasis in the Hebrew, or in the book of Hebrews here, is on the future. He said, don't live for the world. Don't live for the religion. Don't get caught up in religion. Get caught up in Jesus Christ. He will set you free. Be a stranger and a pilgrim on this work. Walk by faith, not by sight, he says. Israel thought that by keeping the ceremonies and keeping the rules and keeping the traditions that they would be going to heaven but they were lost. And throughout the book of Hebrews, he shows them. Oh, they claim to be the children of God. They claim to know God. They claim to worship God. They claimed all of this stuff. But God, over and over in Hebrews, said, You're lost. We have family members that we wish them into heaven. And we've got to come to the understanding like God was telling them here. All your religion, you might be a good old boy and you might, grandma might be one of the best, sweetest folks on earth. But religion ain't going to get her to heaven. And we wish our relatives. We wish people into heaven and consequently we let ourselves off the hook from being a solid witness and we don't keep telling them about Jesus Christ and we let them die and go to hell because we wished them into heaven when they weren't just like the Jews. As to the religion there were three problems. First there was a national and religious identity of the Jews. Now stop and think about what I'm saying here on these three things. And I think you'll recognize it. The Jewish political system and religion were one. For a Jew to turn to another religion was to almost deny his nationality. In the eyes of many, they were considered, it was considered as treason. Forsaken their family, forsaken their nation, forsaking their all the traditions, everything is like treason. Secondly, there was an extreme prejudice between the Jew and the Gentile. After so many centuries of bitter hatred, it was extremely difficult for them to get this in their head that they could actually, a Jew, sit down with a Gentile day after day after day and worship the same God together. They had been so indoctrinated on you got to be so separate. 
And that wasn't God's intention. God said, I want them to come together. Become one with the Gentiles and to fellowship with them on a daily basis. And then the third teaching. The third was the teachings of Jesus. Now stop and think. Jesus had predicted the destruction of the Jewish nation. Of the center of their worship. And of their temple. That didn't go over well with the Jews. Does that ring any bells? There was a guy by the name of Jeremiah got thrown in the dungeon. Why? Because he did the same thing. God told him to tell them that the nation was going to be destroyed. That they were to give up. Yield. And they would live. They didn't like his message. And they didn't like Jesus' message either. They had to accept the fact that that religion was going to be overthrown by God himself. That old Jewish worship was going to stop. The pressure must have been unbearable to many of those Jews. They had family members. They had lifelong friends that could not understand why they turned from their Judaism to a different religion, Christianity. They were living lives that were so difficult from, or, or different from before. They were free now. They didn't have to follow all the ceremonies and rules and regulations that the Pharisees had laid on them. They were viewed as, as having turned against their own religion and turned against their own people. Does that sound familiar? They had to live with the pressure of knowing that if they stood for Christ, they would be shunned by the Jewish people, their families. He's writing to a people some of them were saved, some of them were thinking about it, and some of them just didn't believe. But when you stop and think with me, when you go, when your family goes into captivity, brother, you don't go by yourself. Your wife's going with you. And if she's not a believer, you, she's still going. And he's writing to them too. If you've been listening to the Christian witness of, of your family members or a neighbor or something, and, and, and you're, you're, you're on, the, the, on that fence and you're not sure if I, I want to make that leap or not, that's who he's writing to. Not to a church. He's writing to those, some saved, some almost, some totally lost. And they're having to sit there. Been, they've been persecuted already. And if they make this leap, then their families are going to shun them. If they stand and stay in Judaism, they deny the Savior that wants to set them free. Read the book of Hebrews. Because that's what he's telling them. And he's trying to entreat them to come to that right decision. What were they to do? 
Some wavered, some fell back. Some are afraid to separate. Some are on the verge of apostasy. They needed this word of God and this exhortation from the writer of Hebrews, that book that would shore up those Christians that may be doubting. That those that were on the fence would go ahead and say, yes, this is a better thing. And those that were lost presenting Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation. They needed to understand that they were not forsaking their nation, not forsaking their religion. They were fulfilling Judaism, God's old covenant with their fathers. And they were taking a stand with Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the gospel. We have a great study ahead of us. Don't miss a service. What am I really trusting in? My trust in religion? Rules? Ceremonies? Family? whatever it might be, or am I trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior? And if he saved me, am I going to continue to stand with false religion? Or am I going to take that step say I'm going to stand with Jesus Christ? What a book, and we haven't even got to verse 1. It is absolutely loaded, and I trimmed off about five pages of notes that I wanted to bring for the introduction. There's so much in this book. You will begin to see Jesus Christ, and you will be able to see yourself. How many of you have heard the song, I'm adopted, hallelujah, I'm a child of the king. You ever heard that? Totally false. And I'll prove it to you. It's going to be fun. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you've given us your word, not just to set on the shelf, but to read and study and Lord, to make it a part of our life and give us instruction and teach us about yourself and Lord, encourage us and challenge us. Lord, help us as we study this book of Hebrews that you would receive the honor and glory for every part of it. I pray that you would guide and lead and give each one of the teachers the wisdom that we need to bring just the right material, just the right teaching to help our people, strengthen the Christians, those that are in doubt, those that are questioning, those that are under persecution, those that are struggling, wondering whether they should make a decision. I pray God you would give them that answer and Lord help them 
And for those that are lost, God, we pray that through this study, the people will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and be set free from their bondage of sin and religion and their faith might be in Jesus Christ. Lord, bless us now. In his name we pray. Amen.